You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. An update to the U.S. vulnerabilities equities process promises more transparency and accountability in handling zero days. A look at China's equivalent doesn't. Worries about North Korean hacking, mole hunting at Fort Meade, blueborn bugs and home assistance, more malware in Google Play, and how to get around that pesky voice recognition software. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, November 16th, 2017. The U.S. released publicly revisions to the Vulnerabilities Equities Process, VEP, the policy that governs when and under what circumstances U.S. agencies will disclose zero days they discover. This means the intelligence community, for the most part, especially NSA. The principal effects of yesterday's White House announcement, which has received generally positive reviews, are said by cybersecurity coordinator Rob Joyce to be greater transparency, more accountability, and better stakeholder representation in the process. A large number of agencies are represented in the process. The intelligence community members aren't surprising. They're generally thought to collect zero days and develop them into tools or produce countermeasures against foreign organizations that might do so. And these include the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the Department of Justice, the FBI, the National Security Agency, U.S. Cyber Command, other Department of Defense agencies, and the Central Intelligence Agency. Other organizations represented in the process are less commonly thought of. The Office of Management and Budget, which represents the defense security interests of government systems. The Treasury Department, there for the banks. The Energy Department, looking out for the power grid. The Commerce Department, which is there to represent the private sector, including tech companies. The State Department, which keeps foreign interests in mind. And the Department of Homeland Security, not only for the security of the .gov domain, but for critical infrastructure generally. As noted, the response to the announcement has been generally positive, at least on the part of those one would expect to advocate for transparency and accountability. Both the Mozilla Foundation, which you'll associate with the Firefox browser, and the Center for Democracy and Technology's Freedom, Security, and Technology Project were favorably impressed. They appreciated the role of non-IC agencies and the promise of regular reports on the VEP. In fairness to the previous administration, Joyce's predecessor as cyber czar, Mitch Daniels, had always insisted publicly that whole-of-nation equities were represented in the process and that the default was disclosure. 
and Joyce, in his discussion, said that the announcement represented continuity as much as it did change, and that the U.S. government really hadn't been in the business of stockpiling zero days. But what those who applauded the announcement, like the Center for Democracy and Technology, found appealing was the public formal description of the process, which they regard as a significant advance in transparency and accountability. Past criticism of the VEP have come from two sides. Some, suspicious of the potential for government overreach, thought the process too closed and likely to be too biased in favor of surveillance operations. Others were shocked by how leaky WannaCry and the shadow brokers showed highly secure agencies to be. On the other side of the issue, critics said that the VEP amounted to almost a kind of unilateral disarmament and that in any case it was no part of Fort Meade's job to become a free quality control shop for the likes of Microsoft, Google, and Apple. We shall see how the newly revised process plays out, but for now, the reviews seem good. So how does the competition do business? A report published this morning by Recorded Future took a look at how China manages its national vulnerability database. The researchers found that China's Ministry of State Security, the MSS, seems to call the shots in a fairly unchallenged way. As they put it in their executive summary, quote, Recorded Future Analysis has uncovered evidence of a formal vulnerability evaluation process at CNNVD, that's the National Vulnerability Database, in which high-threat CVEs, common vulnerabilities and exposures, are likely evaluated for their operational utility by the MSS before publication. End quote. The useful vulnerabilities are exploited then, while the state slow rolls their disclosure. Turning to a country where there's little pretense to disclosure, observers see a recent increase in North Korea's cyber operational tempo and think this could represent a possible indication that Pyongyang is preparing to wage a wider cyber war. And of course, questions about leaks from NSA, mostly those peddled by the shadow brokers, are among the concerns that have produced controversy over the very notion of zero-day hoarding. Those leaks have also led to speculation about a mole or moles remaining on the payroll at Fort Meade. Kaspersky Lab, hardly a disinterested party but not to be dismissed out of hand either, has released the results of an internal study that suggests the much-discussed NSA worker's laptop that was protected by Kaspersky software was in fact riddled with other malware, and that such malicious code, and not a Kaspersky security product, was the root cause of any compromise. This is unlikely to change many minds within the U.S. government over the expulsion of Kaspersky security products from federal systems. Targeted spear phishing attacks continue to grow in sophistication, taking advantage of the human factor to circumvent technical countermeasures. Roy Catmore is CEO at security firm Ensilo, and he offers his views on social engineering. If you're looking at most of the attacks, they will start by a, a human intervention kind of uh, triggering activity. There are seamless uh, malicious activities triggered by malvertise and, and what we call a run by malwares. But most of them, if you're looking at the major uh, infections today, are triggered by a user interaction. And it seems like time and time again when these are described uh, that the HR department seems to be a target. Can you take us through some of the uh, types of attacks that people use when they're targeting HR? If you're looking into uh, targeted uh, phishing attacks as opposed to kind of just the spammers all over, you will find that uh, HR department and administration in general 
are a fertile ground to be the target. And the reason are very simple. Make it a very credible email is, is pretty simple when it comes to HR. Think that basically each and every company have their own public way of recruiting people. Recruiting is becoming a huge uh, effort, especially in today's kind of ecosystem. And, and of course, the social media are becoming the best way to recruit and fast and spread the word. And by having some, it's going to be very easy for somebody to target an organization that is currently hiring by sending a spear phishing email that will have the exact position, a resume inside that could be, of course, include some kind of an exploited document encapsulated within a normal document with the right name, the right uh, job application. And, you know, overall, it looks legit. Now, is this also an effective way for for the bad guys to uh, work around defense mechanisms that people might have in their corporate networks? I'm I'm imagining, you know, if I'm trying to, uh, pretending to try to recruit someone, I could say to that person, hey, I don't want to send this to you on your corporate email. Let me send it to you on your Gmail account. But then they may still download that attachment to a corporate computer. Yes? Very good point. Now, think about that, you know, another point. So we mentioned why HR is such a nice target. So we said, first, it's easy to sound credible, right? Mm-hmm. You got the name, you got the job, you got the you got the, the entire relationship and, and social connections. That's a one. And the second is, of course, the, the confidentiality around searching for a job. So a lot of people obviously don't want to use their corporate emails when they're applying for a job or interested in listening to a job. And of course, one of the first things to do is to get offline to a private email address. That makes it harder for, you know, one, if you have an anti-spamming or other kind of filtering tools, it's going to work if you're going to go to your private. And obviously what the same thing is going to do that you most likely going to work on the same device, which makes it easier to go through these filtering tools that are male uh, related. So what, what do you recommend in terms of uh, both policy and training? What are some of the best ways that companies can help prevent these sorts of things? So three points. One, be aware. That's kind of education. Make sure that you're getting the right uh, intelligence on each and every one of them. Check the background. The second, patching. Keep your systems patched as much as you can. It might may not help you on the first wave being patient zero, but it will definitely help you on the patient one and second following waves, they're going to come. And third, focus on the consequences. Where is your soft belly? What do you really need to protect against? Is it the infiltration? Is it them being in? Or the consequences, the data-related consequences that you need to prevent and protect in real time? That's Roy Catmore from Ensilo. Armis Labs reports that Amazon Echo and Google Home are both susceptible to the Bluetooth vulnerability reported earlier this fall as Blueborn. Echo is vulnerable to remote code execution in the Linux kernel and to information disclosure in the SDP server. Google Home has information leakage issues via Android's Bluetooth implementation. This bug can also be exploited to induce a denial-of-service condition. Google's Play Store has seen a wave of malicious apps that have succeeded in bypassing the safeguards Mountain View has put in place to protect the store. Dr. Webb found a hidden browser that's used by hoods to goose their ad impressions. Malwarebytes discovered an SMS trojan, targeted only at users in Asia, that subscribes them unwittingly and unwillingly to premium phone services. 
McAfee found over 140 applications infested with Grabos malware, which apparently serves a fraudulent pay-per-install-app scam. Most of the apps infected by Grabos have been audio players or MP3 downloaders. And ESET has discovered some multi-stage evasive malware lurking in innocent-appearing apps. With all of these, the wall around the Play Store's walled garden is looking a lot like a chain-link fence. The snakes seem to be sliding right through. And finally, researchers at the University of Eastern Finland, which we think is close enough to the North Pole so that they should know a thing or two about how children sound when they talk to Santa Claus, report a way of defeating voice recognition software designed to keep known fraudsters from interacting with banks. The software amounts to a kind of blacklist, as in, we know that's you, Harkonnen. You're not fooling anyone here, no sir. You've got to get up pretty early in the morning to put one over on us, etc., but you can get around those systems by making your voice sound like a little kid's. Like this. <clears throat> Alexa, please send me a Nintendo Switch. Well, the little guy's got a birthday coming up. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by David DeFore. He's the Senior Director of Engineering and Cybersecurity at WebRoot. David, welcome back. You know, something we talk about a lot is the importance of communication between folks on the board and folks on the technical teams. Uh, you got some advice for people uh, who might not be so technically minded who want to talk tech. Yes. First of all, thank you for having me back, David. With Equifax having recently happened, you, you see a lot of times where where boards or senior uh, executives aren't as plugged in as they should be on what's going on in terms of cybersecurity and how to prevent it. And what I see a lot, you know, I'm I'm kind of in the middle there. 
I see a lot of times the security professional or, or the person they've hired to bring in is so technically focused and they're going to walk into a company and say, I need $20 million to make us uh, secure. And, you know, the company just made $30 million in profit last year. So they're not about to spend 20 million of it on implementing a cybersecurity solution. So what I'm trying to help people understand and, and be aware of, and it's very common, very basic things is you've got to identify a person inside of an organization that can help put messaging together that resonates both up to the executives where there's potentially a plan on we're going to need to spend 20 million but if you give me 1 million I can get us this far which moves us towards our goal and then also be able to communicate down to that person who comes up with these ideas that hey we've got to we've got to approach this in bite-sized chunks What's the most effective way that we can tackle things early on to make the biggest splash to ensure we're driving towards our security goal? It's all about communicating. Well, isn't a large part of it as well about being able to put it in terms of risk? You have said a mouthful with that sentence. Um, I spend a lot of time with small businesses, large enterprises. You know, I'll, I'll be speaking to an MSP group and they're like, well, we need to set up a SOC and we need to do analysis. And I say to them, you know, if you are working with a customer as an MSP that uh, supports a welder in central Oklahoma, they probably don't need a security operations center. What they probably need are solid backups and a good antivirus solution to protect their environment. And if there is an incident like ransomware because they don't want to pay that ransom, all you got to do is restore from the backup. And if you're worried about data exfiltration at a welding shop in central Oklahoma, you're probably overanalyzing the security threat because unless they're doing some type of new, you know, protected patented welding technology, there's probably a lot they don't need to worry about short of having good backups and having a basic security posture. David DeFore, thanks for joining us. Thank you, David. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. 
Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.